You're listening to the Charge Forward audio blog by Chargebacks 911, bringing you the latest in payments and fraud. To learn more about how Chargebacks 911 can help you reduce chargebacks and recover revenue lost to fraud, visit us online at chargebacks911.com. This episode is from an earlier interview with Monica Eaton Cardone, the COO of Chargebacks 911. Welcome to the Payment Journal Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Mack, and today we're going to be talking about fraud. And to help me with that conversation, I have Monica Eaton Cardone, COO of Chargebacks 911. Monica, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Ryan. It's great being here. All right. Now, when we start off this conversation, obviously there's the, the fraud costs. So how have fraud costs as a percentage of revenue changed over the years? Uh, you know, it's actually continued to skyrocket. Um, we have, and part of the reason is that fraud is, you know, it's definitely dynamic. And as more and more transactions migrate to an online environment, and with the evolving technologies, we have Apple Pay, we have all sorts of, you know, layers of different technologies, all of this innovation, it, there's no way that new technology can be fully tested. And what happens is that creates new loopholes that are that are not vetted, which ends up creating new opportunities for fraud. Yeah, so it really kind of sounds like with, with new innovation comes new innovation for fraud. Correct, yes. Yeah. It's a constantly moving target. So in terms, if we just like really boil this down and look at some numbers, um, I think statistically, uh, just isolating chargebacks, which is one great barometer to measure fraud. Um, if we look at just one country, for example, in the UK environment, we have a 7% growth of online transactions, uh, but that has been followed by nearly a 23% growth of chargebacks or fraud. Wow. So wow. three times, yeah. So you can imagine, you know, now most companies today, if you were, I like to say it's today the whole, um, the whole plan for retailers is really going from bricks to clicks, yeah. <laughs> right? So yep. you, you start out, you know, with that, that brick-based business, but in order to be competitive in today's landscape, then you really have to look at engaging in a, that global um, e- uh, economy. And that means getting to that click environment, figuring out how to create, how to create less friction, um, evolving payment methods, and, and all of those different strategies create a complex uh, technology that, that really has, it, it kind of is like a web, and it provides a nice disguise for criminal minds as well. Now, now as you were saying, you know, kind of the, from bricks to clicks here, so the two-parter here, so how do e-com, you know, how does e-commerce fraud and fraud multipliers compare against the retail industry as a whole? But for our listeners, let's first def- uh, define what uh, fraud multipliers are. Uh, sure. So, so really what we're looking at is we're looking at what type of statistic or criteria is analyzed in order to predicate a fraud. Um, so these are, you know, we're, we're monitoring different trends, we're looking at different behaviors and, and really taking into account, here's the formula that, that we can use as, a, as predictive modeling to establish really the trajectory of, of fraud behavior and where it's going to go. Um, so for example, if we take a look at the EMV shift, so we all know EMV has been this huge movement in the payment industry um, it's nearly been two years at this point, and this is the chip that's in your card. Well, with this particular, um, th- this, this new chip, 
you know, fraud reducing uh, uh, movement. This has really, this, it's really been, a, a, it's created a tremendous effect um, in terms of reducing fraud dramatically, but only in one specific environment, which is the card present environment. And if we look at how much that fraud has been reduced, it is quite substantial because we had a lot of fraud that was going on with skimming where people were able, criminals were able to steal that, that stripe, that mag stripe and get, be able to identify, you know, the card holders details and steal their credit card right from the gas machine or the pump where you swiped your card. So today we look at those statistics since EMV and it's almost non-existent. The fraud has almost been wiped out. It's, it's been such a substantial relief for that type of fraud. Now, why is it that our fraud across the board is still on the increase? Why is it <laughs> not on the decline? Well, because what's happened is those criminals have migrated to an online environment. And when you're on an online environment, then we're dealing with a tremendous amount of opportunities and lots of innovation, like you said, you know, innovation, innovation around fraud, yep. criminal minds using immense, immense creativity to figure out how to, to create breaches, to steal data, um, et cetera. And so we've, we're actually seeing a surge in that type of fraud um, and also a surge in, in more people making transactions online. Most of us have probably bought something from Amazon for this Christmas. Statistically, about 40% of the entire U.S. population uses Amazon. Like, that's pretty staggering. Yeah, yes, and it we know that, is. Yeah, I know. And Amazon doesn't actually accept anything that, is, that has a chip in it for EMV security. Every single thing is going to be online. So, you know, we're more susceptible to, to that online environment, um, or we're more susceptible to fraud because we're on an online environment. Excellent. Now, so, you know, obviously fraud is a increasingly growing problem. And for some in-house fraud teams, what are some of the additional challenges that they face? Um, I think one of, one of the biggest challenges is being able to keep up with the changing times. And, and this is true, you know, it, it, we're in a global marketplace now. You, you're dealing with an online um, environment uh, that is not just relegated to the local geography that you operate in and that you know. Now people from all across the world can purchase your products. You have different cultures, you have different behaviors. You are also competing with you know, different criminal minds as well. And if you have an in-house fraud team, then you really have to, to continue to challenge that status quo, figure out how what you are currently doing could be improved. And, and oftentimes that's a very challenging scenario because you may have had great results with the system that you had in place last year or even last month. But every, every single day presents a new opportunity and new types of fraud. Um, we don't only see this in the marketing, but we see this across the board. So internal fraud teams are best suited if they really implement a layered approach to managing fraud. What this means is that they aren't just looking at running or developing a fraud engine or using one fraud filter or utilizing you know, two different tools. Instead, they're using a fraud filter, they're, they're using A-B testing with some of these settings, 
maybe they have a machine learning environment where they're starting to establish some learning around their own transaction behavior. They're also using a layer of chargeback intelligence and learning from their mistakes, identifying what types of behaviors and patterns are going to trigger fraud. And then they may also use a manual review. The, the human eye cannot, cannot be uh, replaced. You know, it still <laughs> takes a human to point out patterns that a computer can't see. We're training computers to find the patterns, but keep in mind, regardless of the smartest computer on the planet, we still have human criminals that are able to hack systems. So logic suggests, you know, using a manual review process, putting those humans also to work to just spot check things, that's gonna be the secret to success. And, you know, not, not resting on your laurels of having, you know, the, the one system that used to be good enough two years ago. Just recognize you really need to layer in. Um, I, I always look at it as, there's that saying about looking at things through rose-colored glasses. And this is what you find um, in, in many companies. You know, they've, they've gotten into a practice of this is their legacy system. They, they know what they're doing. And they, they have fraud as simply just an item on the, on the profit and loss. The problem is this will get out of control very quickly. So you need to take off the rose-colored glasses try looking at it through blue, black, green, yellow, like 10 different colors, because every single color, you're going to see something else. This is the secret to, be able to being able to identify and predict um, better fraud trends. Yeah. So now when it comes to the removal of those rose-colored glasses there, uh, uh, prevention firm, loss prevention firms, like what, what, what advantages, uh, you know, are, are, do you kind of see with, with bringing them to the table? Well, first, I always believe, you know, every, every company out there should have their core expertise is, is probably, unless they are a, a loss prevention firm, their core expertise is centered around their customers. Um, you know, whether you sell widgets, uh, you sell a service, you, you uh, support a specific software, your core expertise, your core competency is probably not suited around fraud. So a loss prevention firm, this is, this is the type of, this is their core competency. And when you have a company that's focused on one specific thing, then you're going to be able to leverage not only their expertise, but also all of the data points that they are required to communicate with, understand, and keep up to date with in order to be competitive. In order for these companies to stay in business, this means they have to stay relevant. They, they have to be dynamic. They also can't, you can't do business as a loss prevention company if you aren't global, um, because today's environment is a very global environment. It's constantly changing, it's fast paced, and you need to be able to have rules but not just static rules, also more dynamic, um, dynamic equations where you can quickly adjust and being able to leverage that expertise helps any business focus on their core competency, which should be getting more customers, getting better quality, and, and really improving the offer and the product, not having to focus on managing their fraud, let another company tell you how to do that so that you can focus on the thing that really creates more growth overall. Right. So customer satisfaction is always paramount to any business. So how can uh, uh, fraud solutions impact that customer satisfaction? 
Um, sure. So fraud solutions are also going to be able to provide uh, an insight that's valuable in terms of giving giving feedback and helping the merchant or the retailer understand compliance. Um, this is really a sticky topic. Uh, so, so for instance, if if you're a retailer and you want to know um, what is what's the be what are best practices. Um, so, if I'm if I'm looking for best practices for shipping a product. Uh, I may assume because my bank told me, you know, you need to ship a product at least in two weeks. However, if you're looking for best pro practices and you speak to a loss prevention firm, then they're going to let you know, you know, if you have an online store, you're competing with Amazon that ships in 24 hours. If you take two weeks, you're going to experience a lot of fraud claims. They may not be true fraud, but it's still hitting your bottom line. It's coming as a chargeback. And these are chargebacks that you're going to have to dispute and spend a lot of money to recover your money. So you need to follow these guidelines. And for an online store, your best practice, regardless of what, other, what the industry may say, is ship your product in 48 hours. Get it out the door. Because if you, if you order online and you don't receive it for two weeks, Maybe, you know, as a merchant, you did what you said you were going to do, but we can pretty much guarantee you're going to start seeing more chargebacks. Also, things like, you know, terms and conditions, hiring uh, affiliates to make your sales. These are all areas that you can end up creating more chargeback activity, and also they create loopholes for fraud. If you hire other people to sell your product online, you could also become subject to, you know, having information stolen that you don't actually know what things you need to check, what areas you need to monitor. All of these points are, it can be identified as triggers that create chargebacks or create fraud. And at the end of the day, the other thing that's really difficult to, to understand without some guidance as a merchant is just to understand what, what is the source of my fraud? So most merchants will measure their fraud based on the count of chargebacks that they get because chargebacks reduce their revenue and ultimately hit their bottom line. Well, the problem is when you get a source of when you get a whole bunch of chargebacks, it's very hard to identify what caused these chargebacks. So being able to know that you caused the chargeback because you didn't ship the product fast enough or you know, you, you allowed that particular credit card number to be taken from someone that you hired to sell your product uh, versus, you know, maybe you got a chargeback for another reason altogether that was due to compliance. All of these types of hidden sources, if they're exposed, then the merchant can proactively adjust their fraud filter to stop that criminal activity, change their website so that it's more compliant, adjust some of the internal policies so that they aren't getting that. And, and in turn, they're going to see their overall cost for fraud start to reduce. Right, now, now we've been talking about in terms of just fraud with criminal activity, but there's also the human error uh, component of this as well too. So what percentage of chargebacks are, are linked to preventable uh, merchant error? Um, when we when we take a client on, I would say um, an average retailer, if if they have an online environment or an online store, um, I would say probably about 50% of the total chargebacks that they take in every single month, um, we could we could find where they are actually creating these because they don't realize you're they're <laughs> their own worst enemy. 
And, and, you know, it, I mean, it, this is what happens. It, it, you know, you're busy running your business. You're busy growing revenue. You have no idea that maybe the number on the, the, the credit card statement that is supposed to be your phone number so that your customers can contact you, but maybe one digit was wrong. And so every single customer that tries to call you gets a disconnected signal. And so they immediately file a chargeback. Um, there's, there's, we've actually codified 106 different merchant errors that end up creating chargebacks. This is the very first target that every merchant should have. Identify what you could be doing that's creating unnecessary losses and then plug those holes immediately so they don't continue. So how can uh, merchants accurately identify the, the true source of chargebacks and determine which ones really kind of to dispute? Well, there's a few things you can do. You can try the old-fashioned method, which is reach out and contact every customer and say, see what they say. You know, get there's there's no law that that says that you can't contact someone who bought a product from you and has a complaint. And and you know, but understanding that oftentimes we don't have the luxury to do that. It's very difficult to to collate all of that data and and actually have a format or even make sure that the customers are honest with you and they tell you. Um, there are other technologies are available. For instance, we have a technology called inter internal source detection, ISD. And what this does is it works behind the scenes. It collects all of the chargeback data, and then we compare that data with outside resources, internal resources, um, in order to identify the actual source, whether it was merchant error, um, whether it was criminal fraud or criminal intent, um, or last but not least, whether I like to say it was an accidental chargeback. <laughs> this chargeback shouldn't have happened. You know, it wasn't really criminal fraud. Maybe the customer called their bank and they, they said that they didn't get the product, but you know, and we know that you really did deliver the product. They just forgot to return it. Um, this is unfortunately one of the fastest growing statistics in fraud. And unfortunately as well, it's, it's also one of the hardest to identify because you, you're seeing a response. When you get a chargeback, it looks like fraud. It looks like everything else. But then when you really drill down, you realize, wait a second, I know that customer. <laughs> and they really did buy that product. Why did they file a chargeback and claim fraud? And then you discover a little bit further, you know, the customer probably didn't even realize more often than not, they don't. They didn't realize that them getting a refund from their bank actually cost the merchant money, produced a fee, could produce fines, and resulted in a criminal activity. And more <laughs> wow. often than not as well, they don't have any consequence. So guess what? They do it again because it was so easy. It's customer service on demand. Right. Um, so, is it, so you know, you, you, need to defi you need to be able to identify those cases, produce a consequence, get your money back, set the record straight. And usually that teaches, in fact, statistically, if merchants do a good job at doing this, and it's called a representment, in other words, you're representing that transaction to the bank and saying, this is correct. If you do a good job with that, statistically, you're going to stop about half of the friendly fraud cases, and that's what the name is for this type of chargeback, that end up getting filed against you. Wow, cer certainly a lot of uh, interesting information there, and I'll make sure uh, going forward that I make sure I return all the items that I need to. <laughs> <laughs>
Now, if, if I'm looking to integrate with a third-party loss prevention solution, what kind of ROI can I expect? Um, it, really, it really depends. So first and foremost, you should make sure that you're going to be a good fit for a third party. Um, if, you are, if you're a very, very small merchant and you don't have that much fraud, but it's still painful, it may actually be good for you to do some research, um, look, look for some help, some advice, and, and figure out how to help yourself. Because if you just have a handful of fraud cases each month, then you're probably not going to be able to, it's probably not going to be worth the investment of getting an integrated solution with a third party. Um, as you, if you're a company that's growing, or if you have, you know, at least 100 fraud cases a month that are coming in, um, then this is, this would be a good match for a third party provider. Um, so things that you would need to do and, and the type of ROI that you could expect um, I can't speak for every other third-party provider, but I can tell you that for ourselves, we try to, we, we definitely, we provide ROI guarantees. So any third-party provider that, that provides a loss prevention type of service or remediation service, they should be able to stand behind what they do. Because at the end of the day, you're trusting them to go after fraud, recover some of your money, help refine tools to get the best results. And because money is included here and there's revenue that you're going to recapture as a merchant or a retailer, then there, there definitely should be some type of performance metric that's associated. So that's a great thing. There, it should be a no-risk equation. Typically, we like to see retailers who, who are compliant, and like I said, the first thing that we would do is say, let's make sure that you're not your own worst enemy. Let's get you compliant. Let's fix all of these errors if you have any. And then after that, we get going. And we like to see an, an ROI of, you know, that for every dollar that you spend with us, you should be making three. Um, it should be a great return on investment. And at the end of the day, the, the goal is to reduce fraud to the point where merchants and retailers are comfortable growing their business and our clients should be growing, not you know, starving or shrinking because they just have too much fraud to stomach. Um, unfortunately, we're never gonna be able to get rid of all fraud because it's continuously evolving. So it's, it's funny, I get asked, well, if you have an effective solution, then you should get rid of all chargebacks. Yeah. Well, it just it's one of those scenarios where you plug like 10 holes and then you find there's 30 <laughs> more that come out of nowhere. Absolutely. So, so yeah, it keeps us all busy. Yes. Well, it, this has been very interesting. So if people want to learn more about Chargebacks 911, where can they go? Um, you can come and visit us online. That's www.chargebacks911.com. Excellent. Well, thank you very much for your time today, Monica, as we talk about fraud, and we hope to have you back on the podcast real soon. Great. Thank you so much. That wraps up another episode of the Payment Journal Podcast. If you're interested in being part of the podcast, please reach out to us at info at mercatoradvisorgroup.com. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the podcast, and we look forward to keeping you up to date with the latest payment news.